0: Many of my favorite books are books where people tell the story of their lives. The most interesting of these books are books where people tell this, at least to me, are where people tell the story of their walk with Jesus Christ. I love to hear the testimonies of how Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior changed their lives and used them to change the lives of others. Life stories of how being a follower of Jesus Christ was worth every difficult situation they encountered while serving Him. Two of my favorite stories, two of my favorite biographies, is one by Dietrich Bonhoeffer or about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. During World War II, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis bullied a continent and attempted to exterminate the Jews of Europe. A small number of dissidents and saboteurs worked to dismantle the Third Reich from the inside. One of those men who worked to destroy the Third Reich from within was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed in a concentration camp for his part in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. His biography gives us a witness of one man's extraordinary faith. He was a godly, godly man, and he... Did so many things to bring people, to disciple people to Jesus Christ. And he lost his life because he took a stand and said, This is wrong. It brings you face to face with a man determined to do the will of God radically, courageously, and joyfully, even to the point of death by the firing squad. Bonhoeffer's story is the story of a passion, a life of passion for truth and a commitment to justice on behalf of those who face extraordinary evil, all in the name of Jesus Christ. Wonderful book. You need to get it. You need to read it. Another one that I am enjoying is one that I am reading now that you will find as an example back on the back of, uh, in the foyer, on the bookshelves. It's about Darlene Dibler Rose. The story of one woman's triumphant faith. This young woman, a newlywed, an American missionary survived four years in a Japanese prison camp deep in the jungles of New Guinea. She was separated from her new husband, whom she never saw again. She experienced starvation, disease, and torture. She was forced to sign a false confession and even face the execution of her sword. But through it all, she never lost her faith in Jesus Christ, an extremely interesting story about a woman who attributed glory to God in everything that she experienced, even in the four years of being in that concentration camp. It's a wonderful story. Both of these biographies touch our hearts, excite us, and challenge us to walk where they walked, following Jesus Christ no matter what the cost. I love to read biographies because we get to share in the lives of those who are that we're reading about. And this is one of the reasons why I have thoroughly enjoyed our series in the book of Acts as we have seen Luke record the testimonies, the stories of people like Stephen and Peter and Paul. What is really interesting is that Luke records the story of Paul's conversion three times in the book of Acts. This morning we come to the third and final time that Luke draws our attention to Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. Our passage will be in Acts chapters 24 all the way through chapter 26. And in these chapters, we are going to see Paul stand before three powerful rulers in Rome to defend himself from the accusations of Jewish leaders. We, of course, will not be able to read all three of those chapters, and so we're going to walk through them. I'll walk you through them as Luke records what is going on. And as we go through the story, I want you to ask these three questions ask these three questions. Number one, what is Paul doing? What are the uh, rulers doing that he's going to meet, the three rulers? And what is God doing? What is Paul doing? What are the rulers doing? And what is God doing? Join with me in prayer as we ask God to open our hearts and minds to what he has to teach us today. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the stories of men and women in the Bible who you use to bring glory to yourself and who have brought you great, much honor and glory because they followed you no matter the cost. Father, I pray that we would be excited about what you're going to show us today, that we would be encouraged that we too can walk as Paul did. In Christ's name, amen. Paul has been in Jerusalem a while in Jerusalem. Some Jewish leaders from Ephesus who had tried to kill him before recognized him. And they again saw their chance to kill him and stir up a mob of Jews against him by spreading some rumors. The mob became so violent that Roman soldiers had to pull him out of the mob to rescue him. He was unjustly arrested and almost scourged by the Roman, uh, Roman soldiers before they found out that he was a, a citizen of Rome. And then they found out about an assassination plot against Paul from Paul's nephew. To protect him, the Roman commander sent him to Caesarea to Felix, another governor. Think about this. He sent over 400 men to protect Paul. 400 men to protect Paul on a 60-mile trip. That's how dangerous it was for Paul. And now this brings us to our passage this morning where we will see Paul stand trial before three powerful Roman rulers. The first one, which we'll start with is Felix, then Festus, and then King Agrippa. And what is so interesting is that during these trials, Paul incorporates his testimony during his defense to these rulers so that they will undoubtedly, without a shadow of doubt, hear about Jesus Christ. So please turn with me to Acts chapter 24, and it's on page... 1187 in the pew bible that's the red books in front of you if you need a bible please feel free to take one of those red bibles home with you acts chapter 24 page 1187 this is where we'll find the first trial before felix and the first thing we see is the accusations made against paul let's read verses one through nine and after five days the high priest ananias came down with some elders and that is Caesarea, and a spokesman, one Tertullius, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and in everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge confirming that all these things were so. This is the, these are the accusations that were laid against Paul. Over and over in the Gospels and in Acts, we see Jewish leaders using their power and influence to suppress the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see them misuse the court system to falsely accuse Paul here. We also understand that it's very similar to what the process that we see Jesus Christ going through when he was falsely accused before the same type of leaders years before. And so here we find him standing in a courtroom being falsely accused, The Jewish leaders brought uh, Tertullus with them, and he was a lawyer who was very good at presenting a case before the Roman authorities. In other words, the Jewish leaders hired what? A man who could speak well. It didn't make any difference if he spoke the truth. They just wanted him to phrase everything right. He is representing the Jewish religious, religious leaders, specifically the high priest who was standing right next to him. And his opening statement clearly reviews how corrupt the Jewish leaders are because everything he says, the Jewish leaders would have disagreed with in any other circumstance. We need to make sure of of something or understand something here. The Jews did not appreciate Rome ruling over them in any way, shape, or form. And listen to how Tertullus presents these accusations. First, He says that that Rome had brought peace to their nation. Would the Jews have ever considered that Rome had brought peace to Jerusalem? No. And, And then he says that Rome brought reforms that were good for the nation. Would the high priest or any of the religious leaders have ever agreed with that in any other situation? Absolutely not. And... There was no way the Jews would have accepted what Rome was doing with gratitude. He says, with all gratitude, we appreciate this, Rome, that you have done this, and we are your servants. Everything he said, every accusation was blatantly false. The high priest and all the religious leaders are standing there, and what do they do when he finishes? Verse 9, and the Jews also joined the charge, affirming that all these things were so. How corrupt were the Jewish leaders. Very. And the only thing they wanted was to do what? Get rid of Paul. They characterized Paul as a plague, a pest, and accused him of stirring up riots. Did Paul ever stir up a riot? No, he did not. Were riots stirred up because of what he taught? Absolutely. But was Paul the one who led the riots, who started the riots with the intent of starting the riots? Never. He was also being accused of being a ringleader of the Nazarenes. Now the Nazarenes, remember, we heard a couple weeks ago about a title for the Christians was the Way. Okay, the Way was identifying those who would follow Jesus Christ because He was the Way, the Truth, and the Light. But this is a derogatory term, saying that these were followers of that Nazarite. And so, was Paul a follower of the Nazarene? Yes. But the implication was that not only was he was a follower, but he was one that was leading the Nazarenes, these, these people, to become troublesome to Israel and to become troublesome to Rome. And of profaning the temple. They said he, he profaned the temple, but we stopped him. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you understand what that means. He was accused of bringing who? Trophimus into the what? Temple area. And we understand that that wouldn't have happened because Trophimus would be dead if he had, and Paul would have been severely beaten and punished because of it, because if he was the one who had actually brought him in there, which Paul never would have done because Trophimus was what? His friend. He wouldn't have wanted him to be killed. And back when we learned this a couple of chapters ago, they accused Paul of, he did this, but notice that they don't do that here. What do they say? Look at verse 6 of chapter 24. He even tried, how did they change? He tried to profane the temple. Which means what? He didn't, but what did they accuse him of before? Of profaning the temple. They changed the charge to fit whom? The situation they were in. Because they didn't want to be a complete liar before Felix. And so it's interesting to see that Paul is being set up. And even though Tertullus opened and had no basis in the truth, the Jews stood before Felix and gave witness. The Jews were not interested in justice, they were only interested in getting rid of Paul because so many people had become to Jesus Christ because of his ministry. And then, starting in chapter 24, verse 10, Paul begins his defense. Chapter 24, verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either, in the temple or in the synagogue or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. As we see, Paul is going right down the line. He's going, I've only been in Jerusalem for 12 days. Why is that important? How many days of that 12 days was he being pure, going through a purification ceremony? Seven. So how many days is left? Who's got good math skills here? Five days are left. Could Paul have incited a riot, incited dissidents, and built a mob, okay, in five days? No, he couldn't have. And then as he goes down in verse 13, uh, 14, but this I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He says, I believe the same things that they believe, and I follow the way. I didn't stir up anything. I didn't cause any dissension. I didn't teach in the temple. I didn't teach in the synagogues. I didn't have any disputes outside in the streets. And he says, they know this. And then in verses 22 through 27, we see Felix's response. Verses 22 through 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, "When Lysias, which is the tribune, the commander of the garrison that was in Jerusalem, the tribune comes down, I will decide your case." You know what's really interesting It's throughout the rest of this story, Lysias, Lysias is never called. Lysias never testifies. All we find Felix trying to do is what? To send them on their way. We understand that Felix, even at this point in time, early on in the trial, early on in in everything we're going to see, that Paul is what? What did he understand? Paul's innocent. Paul is innocent. He's going to postpone the trial till later, but what I find really interesting is something we find in verse 24. After some days... So he sent away the, the Jewish leaders. He has kept Paul he's not, uh He's allowed to have people come in and out and see him. But in verse 24, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about who? Faith in Jesus Christ. What we see here is Paul, he brought Paul before him because who was interested in what Paul had to say? Felix. Now, let me put you in that place. You're on trial. You're innocent. You're being detained. And the judge, the ruler, brings you before him to talk to you. What are you going to be interested in telling him about, talking about? I am innocent. You need to let me go. You know this. Would you be tempted to speak about you and your defense? Absolutely. But what does Paul speak about? jesus christ he spoke about jesus christ paul could have used this time to further persuade felix that he was innocent of the charges but he wasn't interested in leaving he was interested in making sure felix his wife and everyone else who was listening heard about his savior jesus christ and felix was a very evil evil man he was known to be ruthless and cruel and driven by lust So much so that in just a few years, he would be removed from his position because he was so hated, not only by the Jews, but by Rome himself because he brought so many issues in Rome because of his cruelty. Think about the moral depravity and the danger that Paul was faced with. Think about the danger of presenting Jesus Christ to a man who was so cruel and violent. But he stayed on mission and spoke so clearly about Jesus Christ that this man who was cruel, look at what he says in verse 25. And as he reasoned, that's Paul, about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. He was so alarmed He was so touched about what Paul was talking about, about Jesus Christ and about self-control. Can you imagine standing before a leader who is known to be cruel, who will kill anybody at the drop of a hat and sit there and basically talk to him about self-control while he's presenting Jesus Christ? He stayed on mission. And Paul stayed on mission for two years. He was imprisoned in Caesarea under Felix for two years. And Felix called him back repeatedly. But you want to know something? Which we're going to find out later. Felix didn't listen. What was Felix interested in? Look at, look at what he said in verse 26. Just before that he says, When I get the opportunity, Felix, I will summon you, and at the same time you hope that money would be, be given to him by Paul. What was he looking for from Paul? I'll let you, I'll let you out. I'll release you right now as long as you do what? Give me a little bit of money. And Paul dealt with it. Paul chose to stay two years imprisoned, being an innocent man, so he could spread the gospel of Jesus. He wanted a fair trial. He wanted to be found innocent. But for two years as an innocent man, he spoke with Felix about Jesus Christ. Oh, my brothers and sisters in Christ, how we need to follow Paul's example Oh, how we need to stop looking at how to remove ourselves from difficult circumstances and instead turn them into opportunities to stay on mission to tell the whole truth about Jesus Christ. We need to look at all the circumstances we're in, even the difficult ones, even when we're innocent, even when it's not fair, and turn them into opportunities to say, I want to tell you about my Savior, Jesus Christ. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, saved us from death and the condemnation of our sin. He gave his life for us. He is worth whatever we must endure to tell others about him. And we need to stop looking at getting rid of all the bad circumstances in our lives and we need to look forward at look at taking those circumstances and turning them into opportunities to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see Paul doing here for 2 years. And now we come to the second trial which we find in Acts 25, verses 1 through 12. After two years, we find in chapter 24, verse 27. Look at 24, 27. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. He just said, "Ah, I want to do the Jews a favor. I want them to still... He was leaving. He wanted the Jews to like him. And so he says, I'll, just, I'll give the, the Jews a gift. I'll leave Paul in prison. And so Festus visits Jerusalem as the new governor, and the Jews again make accusations against Paul and ask Festus to move Paul's trial to Jerusalem because he had another plan to assassinate Paul. We find that in chapter 25, verses 1 through 3. And We find also that Festus doesn't want to move the trial and tells him to come down to Caesarea, where Paul is being held, and he will listen to their charges. And we see that in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 25. And in Caesarea... Festus listens to their false charges again in verses 6 through 7. And he also listens to Paul's defense in verses 8 through 12. And then Paul requests his case be heard before Caesar Caesar, because he knows he won't get a fair trial and he knows God has promised that he would be able to testify about Jesus Christ in Rome. He wants to go to Rome. And Paul wants to bring the gospel before Caesar and Festus grants that request. Take a look at verses, starting 25, chapter 25, verse 11. This is Paul before Festus. If then I am wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And that is to the uh, Jewish leaders. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you shall go. You have appealed to Caesar. You shall go. Festus says, "I've heard the case. You have deferred to Caesar, and I will let you go to Caesar." Again, in the second trial, we see the same process. You have accusation. You have Paul defending himself, and he had the ruler doing what? Putting off the verdict. Paul is not getting out of jail, and Paul is innocent. And as we have said before, that Paul is going to stay imprisoned all the way through the end of chapter 28 of Acts. But Paul isn't concerned about his imprisonment. What does Paul want to do? Share the gospel with as many people as he can. And then we see the third trial in Acts 25, verses 13, all the way through Acts 26, verse 32. Take a look at Acts chapter 25, verse 13. Now then some days had passed, Agrippa the king, this is after he had appealed to Caesar, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. What did Festus not want to do? He didn't want to give a verdict. But Festus also didn't want to send him to Caesar. Here's why. Here's what he says. There's a man left in prison nearby Felix, in verse 15, and when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a, second, a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of Rome, Romans to give up anyone before the, accusers met, the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together, verse 17, together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charges in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss of how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried regarding them. What did he say? He goes, I didn't know how to answer all of this. I didn't know how to handle it. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. And then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him. So here's what's happening. Paul appeal appealed to Caesar. Festus also knows that Paul is innocent. There is not, the accusations do not deserve an appeal to Caesar. And here Festus says, I don't want to send Paul to Caesar because I have nothing to write to Caesar about what? about what he is being charged with. The charges are all false. And so he puts it off. Felix puts it off. Festus puts it off. And King Agrippa says what? I want to hear about this. I want to hear about this. We need to understand that King Agrippa is also known for being very cruel and immoral. His wife Bernice is mentioned in our passage and it's was, it was actually his sister by marriage. Paul, again, is not standing before a moral upstanding crowd as he begins to defend himself before King Agrippa. None of them would have any problem letting him stay in prison for the rest of his life or even having him killed if he said the wrong things. And so how did Paul present his defense to King Agrippa? How did he do this? And what we're going to find out is this is going to be the third time that Paul gives his testimony of his conversion. How did Paul present his defense to King Agrippa? He told a story. He gave his testimony. Take a look, and we'll just read a little bit of it. Starting in chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. And then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promises made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it? Thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme and in enra- raging fury. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul says, this is my testimony. This is who I was before I was saved. And then he goes through how on the Damascus Road, he was traveling to imprison and to capture more of these followers of the way. And he meets Jesus Christ, as we already know, because we've seen it two other times, on the Damascus Road in a bright light. in the middle of the day shines on him and knocks them all to the ground. And Jesus says, why are you persecuted? And we see Jesus Christ change Paul. And then we see Jesus. Then we see Paul's changed life taking fruition after he gets to Damascus. Paul gave the one thing they couldn't refute. The king, Agrippa and Festus, because he was there too, and everybody that was listening to them, they may have been able to quibble over the finer points of what he believed versus what the Jewish believers believed. They may have been able to disagree with his logic, but the one thing they couldn't argue with was his personal experience. They could not argue against his personal experience. And that's why a personal testimony is so effective when telling others about Jesus Christ as long as it focuses on God's work in your life and not what you experienced. So let me ask you this. What is a Christian testimony? What is a personal Christian testimony? First is telling about your past. Do we see Paul doing that here? He says, this is who I was. It's telling who you were before being saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw that in chapter 26, verses 4 through 11. And then it's telling about how you met Jesus. How did God open your eyes to who Jesus was? And we see that starting in chapter 26, verse 12. In this connection, Paul says, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priests. But rise and stand on your feet, upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have, been, have seen me and to those things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith. And therefore, in verse 19, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Basically, what he said is I followed exactly what Jesus Christ asked me to do because I believe that Jesus Christ is what? Risen from the dead. I saw the risen Christ and he changed my life. It's not just telling about who you were. It's telling about how you met Jesus. And here we have Paul going through this again. A Luke recording for Paul. What happened to Paul on Damascus Road? How did you meet Jesus? Again, so what is a personal testimony? It is telling about your past. It's telling about how you met Jesus Christ. And it's telling about how Jesus changed your life. And we see this in verses 19 through 23. Look at verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the regions of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Performing deeds. Paul said, I met Jesus Christ and my life changed. He gave his personal testimony and his personal testimony backed up what he taught. Do you know what's really difficult about giving a personal testimony? And that is if your life doesn't match the message. If your life does not match the message, if there is not a change in life, if you were the same person that you were before you met Christ as when you after met Christ, then you do not have a personal testimony if your life is not in the process of changing. And that's what Paul was saying. He goes, here's my personal testimony. This is who I was. I was an evil man. I persecuted the very people of God. I met Jesus Christ, and my life changed. And I immediately started telling all the people in Damascus and in Jerusalem, I told everybody about my change in life, and my life mimicked that. Let me ask you something. What kind of a testimony do you have before the world? Does your life match what you speak about Jesus Christ does your personal testimony have the authority and power behind it because your life shows that you have been changed by Jesus Christ that is so important for us to sit down and think about that is so important for us to to reflect on do the, does the world see Jesus, me living for Jesus Christ and Him being the most important thing in my life? Does the world see that my priorities are in line with Je, what Jesus and God says they should be in the Word of God? Do they see a special kind of love? Do they see a special kind of relationship in my life between my, my family and my friends? Or do they see me wanting and desiring what the world has to offer like everybody else? where that is the most important thing. And then a personal testimony is telling about your future hope. It's telling about your future hope. Look at verse 23 of chapter 26. He continues that the Christ must suffer and that by, uh, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. It's the phrase by being first to rise from the dead. What was Paul saying there? When he says that Jesus Christ was the first to rise from the dead, what's implied there? There's going to be a whole lot of other people following him. And so he didn't just tell about uh, who he was. He didn't just tell about how he met Christ. He didn't just tell about how his life has changed. He says, you want to know something, Festus? You want to know something, King Agrippa? I have a hope that I will be raised from the dead and that I will see my Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, that's a personal testimony. Those things are personal testimonies. It's so simple. What is your personal testimony? Do you have one? Legitimately, do you have one? Does it match these things? And are you using it within your life and within the people that God brings you to? to tell others about Jesus Christ, no matter your circumstance. Wherever you go, are you willing and ready to deliver your personal testimony to point people to Jesus Christ to say, He saved me when I didn't deserve to be saved. He's changed my life since I met Him. And I have a hope of living with Him for all of eternity. When's the last time you gave your personal testimony? When's the last time anybody heard about what Jesus Christ has done in your life. You see, that won't happen. You will not have the opportunity to give it unless you are looking to give it in every circumstance. Again, Paul was not interested in leaving prison at this point in time. Did he want out? Yes. Did he want his innocence to be proven? Yes. But what was the most important thing to Paul in front of these three rulers? making sure when he left they understood who Jesus Christ was is that your desire in your heart that no matter what where you find yourself when you walk out of the room people know about Jesus Christ we also have to understand something else about our testimony not everyone is going to listen to it look at verse 24 chapter 26 he's giving his testimony and as he was saying these things in his defense festus said with a loud voice paul you are out of your mind your great learning is driving you out of your mind you are mad paul you are mad your great learning has made you absolutely crazy think about that your learning has made you crazy what you're saying doesn't make sense was Festus, was Festus interested in what Paul had to say? No. Do you understand that many times when we give our testimony that the people who are looking at us are going to look at us and say what? You're nuts. We also see that in verse 25-29. Look at the king, what the t- king says. Paul turns to Agrippa, and I, I love what Paul does to Agrippa here. Remember how powerful this man is. Remember where, what Paul is right now. He's a prisoner. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then he puts it right on the king's shoulders. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded, and none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. Paul says, King Agrippa, you know exactly that what I'm saying is true about Jesus Christ. You know exactly what I'm saying And look at, in verse 28, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, Paul, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul comes right back at him and says, whether short or long, I would be to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He goes, you want to know something, King Agrippa? I want you to be just like me, without the chains, but I want you to know who Jesus Christ is. And you know this to be true, King Agrippa. You know what I'm saying is true, King Agrippa. But King Agrippa, again, just like Festus, chose not to listen. We can give our testimonies over and over and over, and many of the people who hear them will never, ever accept what we have to say. Not everyone will listen. Again, Paul is only interested that everyone who is listening hears about Jesus Christ. And so, let's consider a couple of questions here. The questions that we saw At the beginning this morning, what is Paul doing? Paul always gives a bold witness for Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstance. Paul always gives a bold witness for Jesus Christ, no matter the circumstance. No matter who it is, no matter how many are listening, no matter what may happen, Paul uses every opportunity presented to him to stay on mission and tell others about Jesus Christ. My friends, we need to be just like. We need to be bold in the witness. The world out there is dark. The world has no hope. We are the only light, and Jesus Christ is the only one that can save anybody out of this world. And we need to be bold like Paul. He also never compromises his integrity. I've already mentioned this. He spoke to men and women who could have curried him favor. He could have bribed Felix, but he didn't. His integrity always supported his message. He never lost his integrity and we must also live lives of integrity so that our lives do not detract from the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. We must be men and women of integrity in everything that we say and do, how we are at our workplaces, how we are at school. If our our integrity does not match our message, then nobody will ever take our testimony seriously. He also persevered doing God's will. No matter how many times he hit a brick wall, no matter how many times he was beaten, falsely arrested, or mocked, he never paused his mission. And how could he do that? You and I do not face anything compared to what Paul faced, but we often get scared, and we often find ourselves turning away from our mission. We don't want to offend or be the person who is seen as being that person. We don't want to take the chance of being canceled in our culture. But being a bold witness is god's will for you and i how can we be like paul and give our testimony we give our lives to jesus christ because he saved us we like paul see what we were before salvation what we have become after our salvation through our faith in jesus christ that's what we do turn with me to first timothy chapter one. First timothy chapter one it's on page 1262 of your pew bible Listen to how Paul describes himself here. 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 12. This is how Paul saw himself before salvation. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Jesus Christ. The saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom, what? I am foremost. That's how Paul saw himself. And because of the mercy and grace that God showed Paul, he saw his life as belonging to Jesus Christ. So how do we do what Paul did? We understand who we were. We understand that we are blasphemers. We understand that we were destined to be totally separated from God for all of eternity. And here's what Paul said. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul said, I know where I was. I know who I was. And now I've been crucified with Christ. He saved me when I didn't deserve it. And now I live for Christ. you want to know how we become like Paul and give bold witness? We live for Christ and not ourselves. We live for Christ and not ourselves. This is the only way Paul could be a bold witness for Jesus Christ. He saw his life as belonging to Jesus Christ. If you're saved here today, your life belongs to Jesus Christ, not you. And this is the only way we can become a bold witness like Paul. We must also see our lives as belonging not to us, but to Jesus Christ. We must grasp that we are in our sin before we can grasp that we are saved from faith through Jesus Christ. Salvation starts when you can look in the mirror and say, I am nothing in God's eyes. I am nothing in God's eyes. I want to make it very clear for everyone here. Before salvation in Jesus Christ, there was and is no redeeming value in your life in God's eyes. There is no redeeming value in your life in God's eyes before coming to Jesus Christ. Nothing that you ever did. No family you ever raised. There is nothing of redeeming value in your life without Jesus Christ at any time. And Paul knew that. Paul saw that. Paul lived that. I was nothing. Before salvation, the only thing that you or I or Paul could ever deserve is the eternal wrath of God because of our sin against him. But when we come to a place where we see the wretchedness of who we are before God and by faith we ask Jesus to save us, then our lives become worth something because they are worth living for him every single day. That's what makes our lives worthwhile, not what you accomplish, not how good of a job you do at work, not how many times you get promoted. What you have to ask yourself is, do I understand who I was before Christ, and do I see who I am in Christ? And when we see that in the right perspective, then we don't care who we tell about Jesus Christ. We don't care what they can do to us because our lives don't belong to us. We're not trying to save them. We are trying to give them and offer them to Jesus Christ. This is why Paul could persevere in staying on mission no matter the cost. He knew that he had been saved, what he had been saved from, so he could willingly offer his life to the one who saved him. And again, that is the only way that you and I can persevere, the only way that we can be bold. Let me ask you this. What do you really see when you look in the mirror every morning? What do you really see when you look in the mirror every morning? Do you see someone who is good? Someone who is worthy of respect? Someone who is worthy of being a friend to someone else? Someone who is worthy because uh, you have worked hard and made something of yourself? Is that what you see when you look in the mirror? Am I okay with myself when I look in the mirror as Mark Hardenbrook knowing How God looks at me. Or do you really see yourself as being a wretched person deserving death and separation from God because of your sin? But now you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ worthy of offering your life to Him. Which way do you see yourself? As a good person? Or as a person who is only good because Jesus Christ saved you and now you offer your life to Him? It is that understanding that will allow you to persevere and be bold just like Paul What is Paul doing? We know that. What are the rulers doing? Listening to the message but not responding in faith. That's what they're doing. Felix said, Come back when it's more convenient. And by the way, bring some money. Festus said, Paul, you're out of your mind. And Agrippa, do you really think you can convince me so quickly to be a Christian? They all heard the same thing they heard Paul's testimony. Not everyone will receive our testimony favorably, not even a powerful testimony from a godly man like Paul. So what are the rulers doing? They're ignoring the message. And we have to understand something. How many people in our lives, when we give our testimony, when we present Jesus Christ, are going to ignore our testimony? Probably more than not. And you want to know something? How many times do we stop giving our testimony because they're not going to listen anyway? For two years, Paul talked to Felix over and over and over. Did Felix ever understand the message? Nope. For two years, Paul lived in Felix's house, imprisoned, and he never stopped. The last question is, what is God doing? Only what he can do. We see throughout the whole story of Paul that he is sovereignly protecting Paul so that he is offer of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, can be heard throughout the world. He is sovereignly protecting Paul. He protected Paul and got him to Felix when the commander got him out of the mob. He protected Paul by letting his nephew hear about an assassination attempt so that he would be placed to Caesarea so that Festus could hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Festus kept him safe by imprisoning him and by making sure that he went through a trial and listened But again, Festus didn't listen either. God was sovereignly opening doors. God sovereignly opened the door to where King Agrippa also would not listen and honored Paul's request to go to Rome, where who else is going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? All of Rome, Caesar. He is sovereignly opening doors so that the message can be heard by heads of state, by every middle class person in the city and every, in town, by every person who sleeps in the streets, Jesus Christ, uh, God and Jesus Christ are sovereignly directing so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can get out. We don't have to knock down doors to stay on mission to bring the gospel to the world. God is sovereignly opening doors for us every day. All we have to do is walk through them. Instead, so many times we walk right by them because we're afraid of what they're going to say. Our salvation from our sins through God's grace is a worthy testimony, and the world needs to hear it. If you are here this morning and saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, there are going to be doors open this week that you need to walk through and tell somebody about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and often your testimony will be the best way to do that. Are you ready for that? How many times have we lived next to neighbors for years and years and they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from our lips? How many times have we worked next to somebody for years and years? They're they're working in the same office next to us in the same desk in the same cubicle and they have never, ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from our lips. They know us as good workers. They know us as conscientious workers. They know us as friends. But they've never, ever heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doors will open for you this week. Are you ready to step through? If you're here this morning and you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, do it today. Don't wait like Felix, Festus, and Agrippa. Repent and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and have your life become for the first time something worthy of testifying about. If you're here this morning and you have received the salvation that Jesus has offered, then live in that salvation Let the knowledge that you have of who you were in sin and what you have now become in Christ move you to stay on mission and reach every single person you can for Jesus Christ, just like Paul did, no matter your circumstance. The world that surrounds us needs to hear our testimony of a Savior who can change their lives for all eternity, and God has asked each one of us to do that. And so as Michelle comes up here this morning, I want everybody first and foremost to bow your heads and think about your testimony If you're saved by the faith in Jesus Christ, reflect on who you were. Reflect on what Christ has done for you and how He changed you. Reflect on who you were and what God has made you into. Think about that if you're saved right now. Allow that change that God has made in your lives to overwhelm you. Allow that change from who you were to what you are now to be so amazing that you know that everybody needs to hear about it. No matter what the circumstance, that I need to tell somebody what happened to me and what God did for me. Reflect on that. And then review your life to see if your life matches the testimony that you can give others. Has your life been changed? Are you living differently because of Jesus Christ? because of who you're becoming. And then pray, Lord God, help me to see the doors you open today, to be a testimony for you so that my light can shine no matter where I'm at, no matter what circumstance I find myself in. Lord God, help me see the open doors. Help me to stay on mission. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ and you know you, your testimony about your life isn't worth much because it focuses on you and self, then again, let me ask you to repent. Repent. Come to Jesus Christ and say, I see my sin. I see who I am before the Father and Jesus. You're the only way that I can be saved. Lord God, I'm sorry for my sin. And I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Do that today. Don't be like Festus and Felix and Agrippa. Don't wait because none of them ever came to Christ, even though they heard a great testimony. You've heard a testimony of Paul for the third time, if you've been here. Don't ignore it the third time. Repent. Come before Jesus Christ and accept Him as your Savior. Father God, we come to you in amazement that you have taken our broken self-centered, sinful lives. And you, through your grace and your mercy, have opened our eyes to the wonder of Jesus Christ. You, through your grace and mercy, have turned our lives into something that we can give testimony to the world about the saving grace of Jesus Christ about his death, burial, and resurrection, and about how life can be worth something. Oh, Father, help us not to waste our time living for this world, building our careers, being good, because without you, Father, it's all worthless. Lord God, help us to look for the doors that you've sovereignly opened. Help our testimonies to be focused on you and help our lives to be lives of integrity so that people will believe the message of Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.